This is VOA News. I'm Marissa Melton. The United States and Russia have held their highest level in-person talks since before Moscow's Ukraine invasion. AP Washington correspondent Sagar Magani has more. I spoke briefly with Russia's Foreign Minister Lavrov. At the G20 conference in New Delhi, officials say Secretary of State Anthony Blinken chatted with his Russian counterpart for about 10 minutes, their first face-to-face -face meeting in more than a year. Blinken later said he delivered a familiar message. End this war of aggression. And that the U.S. will back Kyiv as long as needed while working on a diplomatic solution. President Putin, however, has demonstrated zero interest in engaging. And there were no signs of progress at the conference, which ended with the 20 nations unable to reach consensus on the Ukraine war. Sagar Magani, Washington. The U.S. Justice Department says former U.S. President Donald Trump can be sued by injured Capitol Police officers and Democratic lawmakers over the January 6, 2021 insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. The department's position that Trump was not immune from such lawsuits was laid out in a filing before a federal appeals court released on Thursday. The brief was filed by lawyers in the Justice Department's civil division. It has no bearing on a separate criminal investigation by a department special counsel and whether Trump can be criminally charged over efforts to undo the results of the 2020 presidential election ahead of the Capitol riot. UNICEF offered Thursday to help Iran solve a series of incidents in which noxish, noxious fumes have sickened schoolchildren, particularly girls, in what some officials suspect is an attack on women's education. The statement by the UN Children's Agency came a day after the Iranian president urged his government to investigate those reports. This is VOA News. The U.S. Commerce Department said Thursday that the United States is adding 37 entities to its trade blacklist for activities including contributing to Russia's army, supporting China's military, and facilitating or engaging in human rights abuses in Myanmar and China. Vanuatu was under a state of emergency Friday after back-to-back -back earthquakes and cyclones struck the Pacific nation. An initial 6.5-magnitude quake struck off the island of Espiritu Santo in the north of the archipelago at a depth of 10 kilometers. This, according to the U.S. Geological Survey, an aftershock with a magnitude of 5.4 rocked the island shortly thereafter. An inquiry has found that Britain's domestic intelligence agency did not act swiftly enough on key information that could have prevented the Manchester Arena suicide bombing in 2017. AP's Karen Chamas has more. The report found that one officer from Britain's MI5 intelligence agency considered Arena suicide bomber Salman Abedi to be a security concern. However, a retired judge says the officer did not discuss these concerns with colleagues quickly enough. The inquiry concluded that if MI5 acted on the intelligence it received, it could have led to Abedi being stopped at Manchester Airport on his return from Libya, just four days before the attack. A lawyer representing 11 of the bereaved families said the report was a devastating conclusion for the loved ones of the victims. Karen Chalas, London. Washington, D.C.'s cherry blossoms are coming out early this year. AP's Ed Donahue explains. The trees are apparently confused about the changing climate. Due to the warmer than average temperatures, the trees never reached their winter dormancy, which is the starting point 
for calculating when the blooms will emerge. Jeff Reinbold with the National Park Service says the 3,700 cherry blossom trees in the city are expected to reach peak bloom earlier than expected between March 22nd and 25th. The city has experienced dramatic temperature swings. It hit 81 degrees one day last week. Two days later, it snowed. Our natural resource manager likened the trees this year, our indicator tree, to a teenager. There's a lot going on there right now. Washington's cherry blossoms date back to 1912, a gift from the mayor of Tokyo, Ed Donahue, Washington. Argentine President Alberto Fernandez on Thursday acknowledged that organized crime is a serious problem in northeastern Argentina. His comments came after a, a shooting attack on a supermarket belonging to the family of Antonella Rocuzzo, the wife of soccer star Lionel Messi. Two people on motorbikes shot at the supermarket belonging to the family of Rocuzzo on Thursday morning. The front of the building was hit by 14 bullets. From Washington, I'm Marissa Melton, VOA News. Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm James Bott in Washington. Today is Friday, March 3rd, and here are some of the stories we are covering. The second-placed candidate in Nigeria's February 25 elections, Atiku Abubakar, makes his first public statement. This battle to right the wrongs of Saturday is not about me at all. It is about you. It is also a continuation of my battles to deepen democracy. The Liberian government investigates a robbery at the home of a former chief justice. Three countries to send new troops to support Somali forces against al-Shabaab. Guinea repatriates its citizens from Tunisia as criticism of Tunisia president's anti-African immigrants remarks mount. What we are seeing right now, it's really like an increase of violence against subsaharian migrants or students. The people are uh, scared to go out from their uh, houses. And today is World Hearing Day as over 1 billion people globally suffer from hearing problems. Those stories plus Samson O'Malley Sports are coming up on Daybreak Africa. Atiku Abubakar, who came in second place in Nigeria's February 25 elections, has spoken for the first time since the Independent National Electoral Commission declared Bola Tinubu of the All-Progressive Congress Party the winner of the vote. In his first news conference on Thursday, Abubakar said his party's lawyers were studying the results of the contest and that the party would decide what to do next based on the lawyers' recommendations. He also agreed that Labour Party candidate Peter Obi won votes from the southeast and south-south regions that could have gone to him. Abubakar explains whether he has any regret for not collaborating with Obi to form a single ticket. This battle to right the wrongs of Saturday is not about me at all. It is about you and it is about the future of those of you who are seated here. It is also a continuation of my battles to deepen democracy and for a better life for our people. I know that Nigerians, especially the youth, are traumatized by the developments. But I want to urge them to conduct themselves peacefully. Like I have done over the years, I assure you that I will commit the rest of my life in ensuring that true democracy, which affirms the supremacy of your votes and your will, will take firm footing 
and guarantee a stable and peaceful Nigeria. This is more so as Nigeria represents the hope of Africa and the black world. On the issue of court, of course, our lawyers are studying the results, you know, of the election, and we await uh, for their advice. So whatever they advise, then the party will meet, and then we decide the next line of action. First and foremost, about um, the Labour Party, whether at the time Peter decided to leave PDP and join Labour Party, we had not, I believe, begun our primary process. So the question of whether uh, he was going to get a ticket or not, uh, you know, did not arise. Yes, agreed, that is a fact. Uh, he took our votes from the southeast and south-south. That, of course, would not make him a president. You all know that to be a president in this country, you need votes from everywhere. So as far as I'm concerned, Peter is welcome to dialogue with PDP. Uh, we are ready to dialogue with him. That's Atiku Abubakar, presidential candidate of the People's Democratic Party in Nigeria's February 25 presidential election. The audio was courtesy of VOA affiliate channels TV in Nigeria. The government of Liberia is investigating a robbery at the home of the country's former Chief Justice Gloria Mususkat that has left one person dead. Armed men broke into her home last Thursday and attacked her and her family. Justice Katz says it was not a robbery but an assassination attempt. The situation has garnered the attention of the Liberian Senate, which invited the country's police chief and the justice minister for questioning. Moses Gaziou reports from Monrovia. Two previous attacks on the night of February 89 were a red flag for Councillor Gloria Mususcout and her family, who live in a remote township of Virginia outside the capital, Monrovia. But on the night of February 23, the attackers finally succeeded and entered the compound. According to the family statement, the attackers made away with a series of documents but left behind valuables before stabbing to death the 26-year-old daughter of Councillor Scout, Charlo Musu. The family alleges that the attackers were not robbers but assassins. They said they had informed the police about two previous attacks but the authorities failed to take the matter seriously and asked the former Chief Justice to hire private security. When summoned by the Senate on Tuesday, Police Inspector Patrick Sudu confirmed the mandate given to the former Chief Justice by police authorities. Colonel Sudu, however, explained they were elected to two prior incidents and that the police were patrolling the neighborhood of Councillor Scott. The police usually at night visit your area, but because the front part defense is high and the fence is always lack, so the police do interact with people right within your facility. The situation has brought the safety of former senior government officials into question, as many of them are not a sound protection. Deputy Justice Minister United Tuan defended the policy by stating his ministry has no legal power to grant security to former officials. I move for a former president and former vice president, that I can remember. So I think that where the problem lies. Meanwhile, the spokesman of the Liberian National Police, Moses Carter, says the police do not have enough officers to protect former officials. The strength of the police has diminished to some extent, you know, judging from 2005. 
when the army restructure our police to now we've had officers who've died some have gotten sick some have traveled you name it so it's not possible that we can have officers assigned to all past government officials police inspector patrick sudo informed the senate that they have identified several persons of interest they include the mayor of the city of morovia jefferson koji and officer of the municipal police of morovia valitele both were accused by the former chair of the liberia truth and reconciliation commission Councilor general verdia of carrying out their talk meanwhile mayor koji and officer teller appear for questioning at the headquarters of the liberia national police on thursday the Morovia city mayor is however not taking the matter lightly he told the voa that he will seek redress to the allegation leveled against him by councillor verdier we can tolerate people politicking but i do not think it is permissible for anybody to be portrayed as a gross human rights violator or as a murderer so i have contacted my lawyers very soon they will be forming an opinion and a conclusion on it i want to be vindicated i want to come out very well to take all of those accusations he have leveled against me to the court in recent years there have been high profile deaths including former and current government workers with little information released to the public the family of councillor moses scott is asking the government to investigate the incident and to bring the perpetrators to justice for voa news i'm moses gazo in morovia Sub-Saharan African migrants are leaving Tunisia amid an increase in racist attacks following controversial comments by the country's president, Kai Sai. From Paris, Lisa Bryan reports there are growing concerns about Tunisia's democratic future. Tunisian President Kais Saied and his government deny his remarks were racist. At issue are his comments last week when he called for urgent measures against what he called hordes of sub-Saharan African migrants. He urged Tunisian security forces to halt illegal immigration and has described the migrant influx as a conspiracy to change the North African country's democratic makeup. Syed's remarks have sparked an uproar and criticism from the African Union. Hundreds protested in Tunis on February 25th. It's really a, a bad process. Speaking to Agence France Presse Monday, Tunisian Foreign Minister Nabil Amar said authorities were trying to reassure sub-Saharan Africans. There was no question of apologizing, he said, as the government hadn't attacked anyone. But Africans living in Tunisia say they are facing a surge of racist acts. Christian Kongwang from Cameroon heads ASAT, an African Student Association in Tunisia. He says fellow students and other African migrants have been targeted in arbitrary arrests, physical attacks and slurs, including on social media. Many want to leave the country. Sub-Saharan African workers are reportedly losing their jobs and getting kicked out of rented homes. Black Tunisians, who make up about 10 percent of the country's population, are also targeted in racist attacks. What we are seeing right now, it's really like an increase of violence against sub-Saharan migrants or students, and uh, also uh, really uh, a climate of fear, and the people are... Uh, 
scared to go out uh, from their uh, houses, scared to go to work. Salsabil Chalali is Tunisia Office Director for Human Rights Watch. She says while racism is not new in Tunisia, the president's statements have inflamed things. This is just the latest controversy surrounding Syed, who grabbed far-reaching powers in 2021, dissolving the country's democratically elected parliament. A new parliament is set to take office later this month with vastly reduced powers in a country that was once an Arab Spring champion. Only 11 percent of eligible voters cast their ballots in legislative elections. Tunisian authorities have also detained or sidelined a raft of critics, including journalists, opposition politicians and civil society activists. HRW has also called on Syed to halt what it describes as a crackdown against judicial independence and reinstate dozens of magistrates and prosecutors who were dismissed or fired in recent months for reasons including alleged corruption. Again, HRW's Shalali. I think this shows also the, the president's willingness today to um, tighten the tone against his opponents and also like the desire to continue to rule alone. Both Washington and the European Union have expressed concern about recent developments. President Syed has previously rejected what he calls foreign interference. Lisa Bryant for VOA News, Paris. The government of Guinea has begun repatriating its citizens from Tunisia after the government accused sub-Saharan migrants of violence and committing crimes in the country. On Wednesday, over 40 Guineans repatriated on a special flight and were welcomed at the airport by the military junta leader, Colonel Mamandi Dumuya. Karim Kamara reports from Conakry. The crackdown on sub-Saharan Africans by police and ordinary Tunisians comes after President Said's accusation against them. His comments were widely condemned across the continent and by African Union. Many of the irregular immigrants have been evicted from their homes. They are seeking refuge in their embassies and are calling to be returned to their countries. Guinea on Wednesday repatriated 49 of its citizens on a special flight. The returnees were welcomed at the tarmac by junta leader Mamadi Dumbuya. Foreign Minister Morrison Lakuyate accompanied them. He said that Dumbuya's actions were done with popular support. He said that Guineans are proud of him and asked that God bless him. The minister says there were 181 migrants at the Guinean embassy in Tunis with more coming. Addressing the returnees at the airport, Dumbuya said as far as Guinea is concerned, what has happened in Tunisia is unacceptable and not normal. He said, unfortunately, Africa will remain undivided. He said he was expressing the view of the people of Guinea on the situation in Tunisia. He says the position of Guinea will not change because they are Pan-Africanists and they will stand by it. Lumbia said there is no place like home. Looking tired and haggard, one of the returnees, Marema Bangura, explains what they have been going through. He says they were evicted from their homes and that the situation is deplorable. She says the police will knock at your door at 10 p.m. and forcefully send you out of your room. She says Guineans in Tunisia cannot go to the shop to buy bread, and in the market they will chase them. She says she is proud to be back at home. Mohamed Sisse, another returnee, could not control his joy at being back home. 
He says Guinean authorities have really helped them. He says they were in distress and that this is a big relief for them. More are due to return and Dumbuya promises to help them resettle. Reporting for VOA Africa, I am Karim Kamara in Conakry. You are listening to Daybreak Africa on the Voice of America. I'm James Butty in Washington. Today is Friday, the third day of March. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And still to come on our program, Samson O'Malley Sports. Somalia says Djibouti, Ethiopia, and Kenya are to send new troops to support Somali forces against al-Shabaab in the next phase of military operations. Hussein Sheikh Ali is the national security advisor for the Somali president. He tells Haroun Maruf of the U.S. Somali service that the new troops will not be part of the current African Union transitional mission, but will be fighting alongside Somali forces. It was very significant. Uh, it was the first time that uh, two Security Council members have openly came up uh, supporting Somalia lift uh, arms embargo. It's a very promising five important countries uh, with us to help achieve all the benchmarks that is required uh, for Somalia to achieve uh, before November this year, but also to lobby uh, for Somalia politically within the Security Council. So you expect the armistice embargo lifted by November this year? Yes, I think that is uh, the, the objective that we put it forward uh, last year when the Security Council failed to lift the arms embargo that the Somalia have requested. And this year uh, we have established a high-level committee, ministerial level, that oversees the progressions of the benchmarks the military operation is against al-Shabaab. It seems that the operations have been paused. What's happening? It's a calm before the storm. We are preparing the second phase. We are concluding the first phase. And uh, with the uh, support of the extra non-atmosphere forces from our neighboring countries, joining the fight is a planning time. That's why it looks it's a quiet so you are expecting additional troops, not those already in Somalia, from neighboring countries. Where are they coming from and can you tell us about their number? They are coming from uh, Djibouti, Ethiopia and Kenya. But unfortunately, I will not be able to share the numbers now for operational purposes. But is their arrival imminent within weeks, months? Yes, it's imminent within weeks. They plan to coming inside Somalia within eight weeks. At least 1.5 billion people across the world are suffering from hearing problems. The World Health Organization, WHO, says by 2050, one billion more may have some degree of hearing loss and at least 700 million will require rehabilitation. And as the UN marks World Hearing Day today, Friday, the WHO says over 60% of ear and hearing problems can be addressed at the primary level of care. Maureen Ojiambo reports. Today, one in five people worldwide live with hearing loss as the majority do not have access to treatment. 
The WHO says it is a global concern with cases on the rise in Africa as 80% of the people in need of hearing care live in low- and middle-income countries. The WHO's Director General Tedros Ghebreyesus says ear and hearing care should be integrated into primary care services, which is achievable through training and capacity building at the local level. Ear and hearing problems are among the most common in the world, affecting people of all ages. By 2050, over 700 million people worldwide are expected to need ear and hearing care unless we step up efforts in prevention, diagnosis and treatment. The good news is that over 60% of ear and hearing problems can be identified and addressed at primary health care facilities. There are at least 136 million people living with hearing loss in Africa, with the number projected to increase in the next 30 years. Many people around the world are exposed to several factors that lead to hearing loss, among them exposure to noise and loud sounds. Shell each other is WHO's technical lead for ear and hearing care in the Department of Non-Communicable Diseases. She says, globally, only 17% of people with hearing loss can access medication. What we also know now is that these numbers are rising. By the year 2050, we estimate that there would be many, many more who have mild hearing loss, but at the moment we are focusing really on those who have moderate or higher severity of hearing loss. And while this this rise is driven by demographic factors to, to a great extent, you know, there will be more people in the world, more older uh, people, but it's also that risk factors for hearing loss are persisting and increasing. This year, the theme of World Hearing Day is Ear and Hearing for All. The WHO says that the inside part of the ear is self-cleaning and therefore people should not insert into it cotton buds, oils or sticks. They also advise the use of earplugs in noisy places, regular hearing tests and wearing of hearing aids when advised. Gabriel Sus says countries should invest in ear and hearing care. WHO is launching the primary ear and hearing care training manual. Through its implementation, Countries can empower their primary health care workforce to better support people with ear and hearing problems. Specialists say ear infections reduce the ability to hear, though some conditions are reversible and most are preventable. Reporting for VOS Daybreak Africa, I am Moreno Jumbo in Sacramento, California. Stand down for Daybreak Africa Sports and here is Samson O'Malley in Abuja, Nigeria. A very good Friday morning to you, Samson. Good Friday morning to you too, James. We begin the sports in Egypt where record champions of the under-20 Africa Cup of Nations, Nigeria, qualify for the semi-finals of the tournament in Egypt following their 1-0 victory over Uganda in Ismailia on Thursday. The Flying Eagles saw off the brilliant Hippos in the fiercely contested match at the Swiss Canal Stadium to qualify for the FIFA Under-20 World Cup in Indonesia. The defeat effectively ended the Hippos' attempt at qualifying for the Under-20 FIFA World Cup. In another quarterfinal match played on Thursday, Senegal beat Bene 1-0 at the Cairo International Stadium. 
Staying with football underage competition, South Africa's under-16 team has been invited to a tournament in Poland where they will face host Poland, Luxembourg and Northern Ireland. The tournament will run from the 27th of March to the 1st of April 2023. The first game for South Africa will be against Northern Ireland. On the 27th of March and two days later, the African side will play Poland before wrapping up their tournament fixture with a game against Luxembourg on the 1st of April. Staying with football news, the managing committee of the Mauritius Football Association has been dissolved. The Minister of Youth Empowerment, Sports and Recreation, Mr. Jean-Christophe Stéphane Tsozier, announced the dissolution on Thursday and said a temporary committee is being set up with a specific mandate. The minister explained that the setting up of the temporary committee was a consequence of the MFA's non-conformity to the law since the implementation of the Sport Act of 2013 and 2016. The Accra 2023 African Games to be hosted in Ghana has been rescheduled to March 8th to the 23rd, 2024. The African Union Sports Council coordinator Dr. Decius Chipande made the announcement this week after inspecting facilities for the game. Ghana was scheduled to host the continent's multi-sports event in August 2022, but the project delayed following an impasse between the African Union, the Association of National Olympic Committees of Africa, and the Association of African Sports Confederation. A total of 179 judokas from 42 countries will take part in the Tunis International Open scheduled from March 9th to the 12th at the Raid Sports Hall. This year, the traditional meeting in Tunis will bring together 21 African countries, 6 Asian countries, 10 European countries, 2 Oceania countries and 3 Pan-American countries to Tunis. The tournament will begin on March 9th with competitions in the under-17 categories followed by the juniors on March 10th and the seniors on March 11th to the 12th. And that's it for this Friday's edition of Daybreak Africa Sports. I am Samson. Omale in Abuja, Nigeria. It's back to you, James, in Washington. Thank you, Samson. Have a very nice weekend. And that's it for this Friday, March 3rd edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for spending your week with us. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. On behalf of the Daybreak Africa team, I am James Button, Washington, wishing you a very good weekend. We'll see you again on Monday morning. It goes without saying that U.S.-China relations have always been somewhat complex over the years with its ups and downs. Tensions between the two countries have increased recently due to several factors. Hi, this is Rick Pantaleo, guest host for this week's Encounter. On our next edition, my expert guests will give us an update on U.S.-China relations. Listen Saturday and Sunday for Encounter.